Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the editors of Film Comment. On this week's podcast, we spoke to Barry Jenkins, the Oscar-winning director of Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk, about his latest project, The Underground Railroad. It's a lush 10-hour epic that marries Jenkins' distinctive cinematic sensibilities with the historical fantasy of Colson Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel which imagines the Underground Railroad as a real-life network of trains and tunnels. Over 10 episodes, all directed by Jenkins, the show traces the odyssey of a young enslaved woman named Cora following her escape from a plantation in antebellum Georgia. As Cora is pursued from state to state by a seemingly possessed slave catcher, Jenkins combines bracing and often brutal realism with moments of thrilling fantasy and beauty. We sat down with Jenkins to discuss five key scenes from the series and the ambitious ideas and intricate craft that went into each. Listeners beware. The conversation touches on crucial plot points, so if you haven't seen the series yet, please press pause. Barry, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We feel really lucky to have some time with you to talk about the Underground Railroad. We're recording a week before it comes out. Very exciting time. So just first of all, tell us how you're feeling. No, I mean, it's exciting for you. It's terrifying for me. Um, (laughs) You know, this is always that moment. Um, You know, right now the show is still mine. And then once it comes out, you know, it's no longer mine. So it's a very, very interesting place to be. Um, But I feel good. You know, the the reviews have been, you know, very interesting. I think people are are seeing the show, um, which is great. I'm curious, is there anything you've, you've received a message or something so far that has really already, you know, touched you or set up some expectations? Not not set up expectations, but I have been talking to people who are seeing, and even the the plot of the show or the epicness and all those things, but but they're seeing um, my ancestors in the way um, that I hope they would, you know, in this very rounded and complex uh, way. And so, yeah, that's been very, very affirming. Great. All right. So how we're going to do this today is Clint and I uh, selected with great difficulty, I must say, uh, five scenes that we thought were really interestingly made and also spoke to the larger themes of the series uh, Mm -hmm. beautifully. And we wanted to have you talk to us about the ideas and the kind of filmmaking thought that that went into each scene. Some of these might as uh, may venture into kind of spoiler territory. So listeners, um, if you really are sensitive about that, just be be warned ahead of time. Yes, watch all 10 episodes before you listen, ideally. This is a spoiler-filled um, podcast episode. <laughs> that that yes. should be on the front, <laughs> right, right. At, at the top of it. <laughs> well, well, we'll do our best, uh, but we'll, to avoid, yes. but you never know. Cool. All right. So I think we'll start. We'll jump right into it. I know Clint had uh, a scene from the from chapter one. You want to take it away? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about this scene that happens right right at the beginning of the series. It's a really powerful moment where you have this. Uh, birthday party going on and we're introduced to Cora. It's at the plantation and it's interrupted. And the Randall brothers who are the plantation owners intervene and they're just kind of like out for a walk. And the tension, just what had been this kind of enjoyable party scene just suddenly 
shifts to something very different and darker. And one of the Randalls asks to hear the Declaration of Independence uh, read by a young boy. And this scene just really seemed to set the stage, I mean, thematically, I think. But um, from a filmmaking perspective, I was interested. It's it's very dark. There's this, it's, it's happening at night. There's very little light. And then there's this sudden vortex of tension that just kind of comes out of nowhere. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, setting the stage with that scene and kind of how you approached that. Yeah, one one of the cool things is, you know, the show is an adaptation. And so Colson Whitehead, people were surprised when Colson Whitehead had already done a lot of the work. He built the the scenario um, that the scene uh, comes out of. But I think it's it's great the way you framed it. The idea that this party is happening, it's almost unperturbed. You know, what we what we what we don't know as well from the images we've seen. Um, of this time of the condition of American slavery is the slave quarters weren't right next to the plantation house. They were always separated by, I don't know, like a quarter mile, a half mile of distance. And so for the Randall brothers to come across the plantation grounds at night, it's very intentional. And as this party's going on, it's one of the rare moments um, when the enslaved can actually express themselves, when they can uh, exhibit themselves free of both the gaze, you know, and the threat um, of the overseer um, or the, the slave master. And so you're right, you wanted to build a scene in the beginning where it's so free. And one of the things I really love about that sequence is we had so many amazing background actors, many of whom were our advisors, you know, we're used to seeing uh, these white men uh, who preserve all these rifles. They go to Gettysburg, they reenact these Civil War battles. Um, there are also Black folks in the South who preserve these traditions of what it would, would have been like to have been the enslaved. You know, the, the, the way they farmed, you know, the, the, the way they laughed, the way they played, the way they danced. And so what you're hearing at the top of that scene is we were filming the sequence and it was late at night. And we were trying to figure out, oh, what would the music be? What would the music be? Um, and I was like, oh, they would just make the music. And, so we, and one of the producers like, was like, what? I was like, oh, if we stop telling them what to do and I just tell the background actors, just y'all, just just, just make marriage, just enjoy yourself. I guarantee they will build us a song better than anything we can find in the library. And so coming into that sequence, the camera's pushing over this raccoon on the spit. You're actually hearing all our background actors. They are just making joy, making Jubilee with their person. It's really wonderful. So we filmed that sequence and then I realized exactly as you were framing, this needs to be punctured. When these guys enter, they puncture this moment. And so we literally flow off of Jockey and Cora and we pan the camera and it's so wonderful. I didn't have to explain anything to these background actors. You see everyone's head go down, chin goes from here to here, these guys enter. And then when they come off the porch, so much about the show for me was, I wanted to remove as much artifice as I could and I think anytime there is an edit, you know, this piece of uh, this piece of time is being connected to this piece of time. And I want it whenever it was possible, this tension you're talking about, I wanted to be able to have it play out in this way of like a duration cinema in a certain way. So you can't deny the veracity of what you're seeing. So once they come off the porch and it's like, oh, the director's trying to show off with this, this, this one steady cam master shot. It's like, no, we didn't intend to do it. It's just this, our camera operator, Jared Morgan, who I call Possum, I wanted to see if he could do it. 
because the longer we go, this unbroken moment in time, he pulls this kid out of no, you don't even notice the kid until we go and grab him. He comes in and now these two faces are side by side coming out of this really wonderful magic as you described. And then at the moment of the aggrievement of the acute trauma, I didn't want to just show the spectacle of acute trauma in and of itself. I wanted to show how that trauma metastasizes through people being forced to witness it. And so at the moment when the kid drops to his knees, then we slow everything down. And what I love about making movies and making shows, and this one, I thought I wasn't going to be able to do this because there's so many pages, so much material and so little time. I thought, oh, I won't be able to be as free in my process as I am with my feature films. The feature film was a very bespoke process. I would have, I don't know, three weeks to focus on just this scene. When we're doing 116 days where there's at least five pages every day, yeah, you don't have three weeks to focus on any one thing. You got to focus on 30 things across three weeks. Um, but James always collects, our cinematographer, he just always surrounds himself with art, you know, where this photographer is a fine artist. And there was a photographer named Bill Henson who focused on these low light, nighttime, long exposure, almost portraits. It's almost like if you blended Ryan McGinley and, uh, and Gregory Crudson, you'd have uh, Bill Henson in a certain way. There's always these youthful uh, moments of poses. And we refer to it as the great spirit. And because the great spirit comes up later and Ridgeway's father, he kind of only sees the great spirit in black folks. And so we devised this idea. We always try to have a prism we're working through where, where sometimes there are these moments where experience is heightened and that feels like it wants to be filmed through the great spirit. And so at the moment when the attack happens, now we come out of reality, reality out of the master shot, and we're trying to almost disassociate or sublimate, slow down this moment, this shared moment of trauma. And so we do a portrait of everyone participating, portrait of the child, portrait of Randall, portrait of Cora, portrait of Caesar, portrait of, uh, of Prideful, who brings the child over. And I think in that way, I think the brutality still has its power, but we're saying something else about it because in making the show, there are people who believe these images just shouldn't exist. We shouldn't recreate them, but I still think there are things to excavate within them. Within them. And so I'm trying to talk about, this is how we decided to do the things that we did, but it happened in the moment. I mean, even the, uh, the, uh, the great spirit light, we weren't sure we'd have enough time to do it. Um, and then we were like, you know what? We kind of have to do it. Um, and I'm very glad we did. Yeah, that modulation is really is really remarkable throughout the whole series between those that kind of reality through those duration shots and then this kind of you know fairy tale fantasy or just like heightening intensification of reality. Yeah, I think it's important because I do think that the reason for telling this story in this medium is because there are certain things, certain uh, certain levels, certain layers of metaphor that you can reach with images, especially when you when you view images through the prism of time, you know, through the duration of a moment, I think when you start to view it from, from that framework, you really can unearth or excavate certain layers of an experience that maybe weren't visible prior. You know, speaking of that, it's, I would say with images, there's time, there's also sound, uh, which obviously is something that you get to add and really play with. And so actually the next scene that we wanted to ask about had to do with the museum in South Carolina. You know, it's, I, I think in the book also, it's like one of those great 
uh, creations, you know, of Colson Whiteheads, you know, this perfect crystallization of kind of what's going on in America at large in this little museum where Cora is hired to basically play a sort of living mannequin in um, exhibits that show the lives of slaves, uh, the transatlantic journey, um, you know, on the ship. And I believe there's one more that but there's, there's the in ship. Africa. Exactly. Deepest, yeah. darkest Africa, as, Deepest, uh, darkest as, as, as the Africa. actor refers to it. Um, it's so crazy. We actually have fun with this episode. It's so weird. Yeah, no, it's 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 already so interesting. And then you guys really, I thought, um, you know, added to it in interesting ways. And the w- one moment that was really arresting was the uh, kind of the guy who runs the museum is demonstrating how to whip realistically to you know one of his like assistants like this is how you enunciate and this is how you grunt uh and i that's i mean that's not that's a cinematic rendering of what's in the book you know that's something very imaginative that you guys did so can you tell us a little about that yeah i mean it was partly by necessity um you know when we left the writers room in south carolina it was two separate episodes uh, we had one episode dedicated to Bessie and one episode dedicated to Christian. So one for Cora and one for Caesar, because we wanted to really build this world out. Um, Cora had this whole uh, job where she was working with this family because so much of that, so much of the show for me is about children, it's about parenting and this journey that Cora goes on as she tries to reconcile some sort of abandonment from her mother um, while also outrunning the condition of American slavery. But budget-wise, logistics-wise, um, we realized very early in prep that we had to make it one episode. We had to start in Savannah, Georgia, because any place where you see this is some inside baseball, anytime you're in the tunnels with the trains, um, that's actually in the same location as the dorms in South Carolina. Um, we filmed it all in the same space. We needed to create a back lot. So we had to shoot South Carolina first and we had to make it one episode. And so we were trying to find a way to really coalesce all the weirdness, all the madness, you know, all the bullshit, you know, of the state and the museum, as you said, almost like this, this glass box, as we refer to it, this sort of like Petri dish of just hypocrisy. It was like, okay, cool. This is where we'll do it. This is how we'll focus it. And uh, the writer, Nathan Parker, son of Alan Parker, the British director who recently passed, uh, he actually came down to Savannah with me uh, doing prep. He was the only writer who came down. And I was like, man, we're building these sets this is what we have to work with because we were sort of behind un, behind the gun on the budget. I was like, how do we take what's in the book and how do we frame it through these dorms and through um, these boxes, through this museum? And so it was kind of by necessity, but I think some really beautiful things came out of it. And that particular uh, scene, it's interesting because you hear the sound first and there's almost this moment of like, is she back in the plantation? Is she having a flashback? You know, you really play with that um, blurring of reality and fiction that's happening in the museum, in the series on so many levels. Yeah, yeah. There were so many ways in the show that we realized because, you know, we typically work in in cinema and feature films. You know, you go into a theater, it's a very captive experience. You're in the middle of an aisle, turn your phone off. You're surrounded by all these strangers and the sound, the sound is massive and the images are massive. And we realized in this version, the screen is going to be much smaller no matter what we do, and yet the sound can still be robust. And I always like to pair things with um, with what's actually in the, the piece, what's in the, the, the work. And I realized I have these characters who their bodies are constrained, but what you hear, what your senses are attuned to, 
that can be completely free. And so it felt like through her ears, through what she's hearing, that was a way to really um, embed the audience in her experience. And you're right, it's a little bit of a misdirect, especially in, in, that, in that sequence, because the, the box you kind of realize very quickly, okay, she's and she's standing against uh, a backdrop. It's almost, you know, very 1930s, you know, 1940s Hollywood. You know, we have this beautiful painted backdrop that then comes back at the top of the second Tennessee episode when you have that big panorama of everyone standing in the cotton field. It actually looks quite like uh, the backdrop of the cotton field that Cora is standing in front of in the museum. But the sound, the sound is the way we realized that we could really not trick people, but we could disorient them a bit the way it must be disorienting for our characters. Yeah, and there's something true in the behavior of the of the museum curator too, or whatever the museum. A extremely worker. true, right, so. uh, almost uncannily true. Right. Yes, yes. Um, the next scene we wanted to talk about was, uh, I think, one of the more moving scenes in the whole series, which is when Jasper first speaks to Cora. Mm -hmm. And this happens during this trip across Tennessee that that they're taking, this forced trip. And the, the colors of this entire sequence, this entire, I think it's a two-episode sequencer, it's all muted, these grays and blacks. And this, this scene takes place at night, too, so it's almost entirely dark. And um, the way it's shot, I think, is just really remarkable, that they're lying down in... A, in uh, at the bed of a um, of a covered wagon, and it's straight down on top of them, and they're next to each other. Um, and just to provide some background, Jasper is a character who is uh, also a runaway who's captured by the slave hunter who's who's chasing Cora throughout the series, and he's a character who's sort of spiritually disassociated himself from his body and corporeal life as a way of finding some i don't know escape it's a very i have to say like a barry jenkins movie shot yeah definitely <laughs> that. he kind of explains his his philosophy jasper to cora and um i wonder how you guys arrived at that at that way of shooting that and also this palette that was that was used for the tennessee scene yeah yeah we knew you know, we decided in the writer's room that so much of what we see in the show was going to be a manifestation um, of Cora, of where she is. You know, she's on this journey. And when they arrive at South Carolina, she thinks maybe I'm free, super bright, bursting um, color. Um, she gets to North Carolina and there's a block because she doesn't want to leave behind these things that she's left behind in South Carolina. She gets to Tennessee and now it's like everything's hopeless. Again, as you said that, I was reminded also, sorry, of the party yeah. scene in South Carolina, that there's another party where there's this sense of freedom that that comes through on the, on the screen too, but yeah. Exactly. And it's why when she first gets to Indiana, she's like, I don't know if I trust this because every time I, I trust something, boom, the other shoe drops. Um, but when we get to Tennessee, we knew we wanted to drain, almost drain the life force uh, from Cora. And the character Jasper's in the book, but he plays a very minor part in the book. And so much of this for me was about as Cora's on this journey, what is she learning about herself? And without even realizing it, what context is she getting on the life of her mother? Um, what can she learn about this abandonment that she doesn't understand from these other people in her orbit? And so the character Jasper, we were in the writer's room, we were just batting around, what is Jasper doing? And as you said, he has found a way to push through 
the corporeal reality, you know, of his experience. And he realizes that this thing I have complete control over. And he realizes that Cora is not ready for it. And so he's being such a bitch to her, you know, over the first half of the episode. And then, and again, so much of this is about if I can get one continuous, one continuous piece of, we'll call it data now that everything's digital, but if I can have an unbroken duration of time of experience, something about it would just feel more, more visceral, more lived in. And so James and I, we actually filmed the scene on location, which was a huge mistake. It was so damn cold. Um, every other wagon scene you see at night was filmed on a stage. This one we did on location, but it was really wonderful because we set the camera, our camera operators on the show, which is so dialed in. This is a television show. We didn't have time to rehearse any of this shit. And the shot you see in the show is take one. And we're like, okay, cool. They're asleep. We want to push past Homer, land on the wagon. And then I said to James, man, it would be great if we could rotate. He goes, we could totally rotate. And so we set it up and we just did it. And I told Tuso, as you give this monologue, you're speaking to all these people. I think you were, and I said to her, you're in command. So what I want you to do is choose a spot just above the, the map box. You've got four corners. And every time you give a monologue, direct it to someone just past camera. And then when you finish that piece, you will see we're going to get nearer and nearer to you. And so we're just doing it. This is like myself and Tuso and James are in this dance. And the camera comes in, she gives the one little piece and then it drifts down, then it drifts down, then it drifts down, it drifts down so much that now we've pushed past Jasper, you can't see him. And then I said to Calvin, and now I want you to take the scene. And so when he speaks, that's when the lens is not motivated to find him. And now Cora's gone. Because to me, the actor came into our lives and did such a great job because Tennessee was filmed as one episode, as one episode. But in, our, but in our ability to frame sequences this way, to grab these pieces of time that were unbroken, I realized Jasper is taking the episode as from Cora, but especially from Ridgeway. And I felt like what he has to show Cora through, I love your words, Clint, through this, through this idea, through this notion, through this very foundational experience of being unbothered, undisturbed by the things that are being aggrieved upon him, by the brutality visited upon him, he's taking back the power. It's why Ridgeway gets so frustrated near the end of the episode. He becomes a child, essentially. And so we filmed it, we came in, we boom, boom, we drift down, and then we pan to Calvin. And I think this was maybe his first damn scene in the whole shoot. And he just crushed it. And, and I'll say this, I'll, 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 I'll be honest about this. And I wish I didn't cut. Because there's a version of the scene where we don't cut to the things Cora is speaking of. It's still the same shot. We don't have to cut, but I decided to allow the audience to get out of the wagon momentarily. Because I do think Cora's monologue is her way of trying to also emulate Jasper. I'm going to free myself by, I, I speak these things, I see them. And so we allow the audience to come out of the wagon. But part of me thinks, I wish I'd stuck to my guns and not cut away um, because it is one single moment in time. And I think it's so, you know, uh, in some ways I'm, I've considered myself a constructivist. I think the elements that the piece of art is built out of give it almost this thematic underpinning. Um, and I think that even though what we're doing this historical fiction and it's an artistic creation, there's something very truthful about the experience of its creation. And having this one 
piece, this one uh, piece of data, I, I hate to call it data, but it's digital, this one piece of emulsion, unbroken, there's something very powerful in that. And yet we did decide to break it by allowing the audience to see the things that she's seeing. Well, that's really interesting. Think that I like the data. I don't like the data idea. Maybe I know, I know. Maybe we could call them, call them images. Christopher Nolan's coming for you now. He's going to show up at your house. He can come for me, but I will say this. You were asking about the uh, the color palette in that sequence and how dark the, the base level of black is in that sequence. Doing this with emulsion, especially doing it with the speed that we did it with, would have been damn near impossible. I think being able to calibrate you know, where the baseline of these images is, being able to go in with the ones and zeros, you know, and manipulate the area raw, it empowers someone like me to create an image of a person with pigment like Jasper, you know, so that we can build a sequence where as the scene goes on and as he speaks to Cora, even though he's wasting away, there's something so luminous about his skin. And that control, it would be impossible for me with the rate that we're making the show, with the resources, with the speed, there was just no way. We'd have right. so many damn lights. I mean, you say that it also reminds me like his physical transformation is is visible too. And it, it, it is visible. And yeah. I mean, the way that you were able you're saying that this was shot as one episode is just uh mm-hmm. how how are how did how were you able to to portray that transformation? It, it was intentional and we just had to be very diligent about knowing exactly where um, Jasper, where Calvin was, because we did shoot this, the show out of sequence. We just had to, we had no choice. You know, we shot the show entirely in the state of Georgia. And by the time we got to this episode, it meant a lot of hopscotching around to try to make sure this didn't look like, you know, the vineyard that we arrive at in Indiana, even though they both were kind of hilly. You know, it's just so much mental, mental jujitsu we had to do to make sure that we were making the state idiosyncratic. Um, and yet we also had to track this sort of uh, emaciation on the character Jasper. Um, I will say if we had done it as one episode, we probably might lose maybe one check-in uh, with Jasper and then the, the, the wasting away wouldn't be as organic. Um, and I did feel it was very crucial, but the biggest thing was as we were shooting these scenes, our camera operator, uh, Jared Morgan, I gave him, a, I nickname people sometimes, I call him Da Possum, D-A Possum. Um, he was just so in tune with understanding that as opposed to cutting to a new shot, I would much rather create a new shot and allow the actors to continue to extend what's possible in this single moment in time. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter, a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing, including features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more. Last week's letter featured an essay by Shoni Enelow on the use of Shakespeare in Nomadland, a review of Michael Koreski's new book on the enchanting powers of movies and memory, a special playlist inspired by the Moroccan concert doc Trances, and some exclusive viewing recommendations. Sign up today at filmcomment.com to have the letter delivered to your inbox every week. You know, the next scene kind of, you know, builds on, I think, what you're saying with you know, playing with historical fiction and in the reality of experience. Uh, and this is one, like an invention of the series. It's it's not in the book, so it really tripped me up. Uh, it's when Cora has a kind of dream sequence as she goes into this like underground railway station. It's really Harry Potter-like, you know, I mean, it's so detailed that 
fantasy station. Uh, every little aspect is is detailed. The costumes, the little stalls, you know, the people she talks to. And I have to say, I couldn't figure out while while watching that I was like, is this a dream? Did she really stumble upon a portal? And I wanted so badly for it to be real, you know, and it really, I mean, uh, I thought that was wonderful. And can you talk a little bit about uh, deciding to do it and also the design of it? Because I thought that was uh, yeah, really Yeah, it was something that we were trying to chip away at in the, in the writer's room. We could never crack it. Um, you know, I, I wanted Cora to, I went back and forth, this Coralie Royal, this Royalie Cora. I need somehow the promise of this place doesn't work. And through this woman not being able to reconcile this hole in her heart, she doesn't understand it, but she can't let anyone else into that heart because I lived that experience. And so that's where the whole thing came out of. That's where the whole thing came out. We were in the writer's room. We were like, she has to go somewhere. Where does she go? And when I first heard the words underground railroad, I imagined black folks on trains underground. I didn't even imagine uh, Devika. I saw it. I fucking saw it. And I knew that here I am. I've got an Oscar and I've got the resources of the richest man in the world. This is my opportunity. I want to fucking see it. And so I was always chasing it. And we called it the hub. I was always chasing it. And yet I realized that it had to be fantastical in order for us to preserve the conceit of the book, it had to be fantastical. And yet I still wanted her to be able to walk through it. No one's going to levitate in this show, I always said. And yet I thought of, this this phrase Afrofuturism, and we often apply it to spaceships and Sun Ra and things like that. But I also feel like, especially because my ancestors were so constrained in their physical person, their minds, their consciousness must've been so robust. And so it became clear to me that if someone had seen the Underground Railroad, there's no doubt they would imagine what is it like. And if there was a, such a heartache that was so potent, it might give them a vision of visiting um, the, the source. The, I'm trying to think of in Star Wars term, where, where the Jedis live. You know, this is where this is where the force is, is birth. You know, this is where it lives. And so uh, we went into shooting still hadn't pinned down what this thing needed to be because a lot of times with me it's one thing to have an idea of something i would much rather have a visual representation of something and then i can work out what are the best ideas in that thing so i needed a location and so we began shooting and we actually filmed that section in two parts one again making a film is so much about logistics making a show is intensely about logistics aaron pierre was with us for about the first 30 days of shooting and then he was gone we were filming in the rail museum uh, where we built all the tunnels and all the, the, the trains. So I said to Mark Freeberg, I don't want CGI trains, don't want CGI tunnels. It's got to be photorealistic. So we found a place with private tracks and private train cars and we filmed all the train stuff there. And then there was this turntable there. And I thought, I've got to do something with this turntable. I've got to do something with this turntable. I haven't figured out what the hub is going to be, but I knew, holy shit, I know she's going to lose this character and wouldn't it be so powerful if she somehow had one more moment with him. So on like day 18 of production, because Aaron Pierre was leaving and we were going to lose the rail museum, I decided, okay, I'm going to write the scene. She's with all these people. She comes out, she hears a voice. It's him. And so we did that. And then I had to back my way into that. And I'm like, okay, well, how the hell did she get there? We're filming, we're filming. 
And finally, we find this uh, train station in Macon, Georgia. And at this train station in Macon, Georgia, there's still a sign that says uh, for colored only. There is still a colored only section sign in this station. This is where we filmed the sequence. And so we have this big atrium. And now we're at like day 110 of production that we finally secure this location. I've got this one scene I need to build towards, but I'm like, okay, what can I do in this space? So much of the show is about witnessing and testimony. So I knew I needed this testimony room. So now I'm just saying how sometimes how simple the building of the filmmaker's ideas are. I'm driving in my car. I hear on NPR about this group of black women, this battalion of black women in World War II. There were so many letters to the soldiers that were going lost and unopened. And so there was a battalion of black women that was flown over to Europe and their whole job was to track down these letters and then make sure they got to the soldiers they were intended for. It was this great, beautiful story on NPR. And I go, what did they look like? And Carolyn Esler found them. And I said, those are the uniforms of the women who are running this hub. So now I'm starting to build things. We go out to location scout and we get there and I'll be honest, I am hung over because we've wrapped the Indiana episodes and myself and John Valentine and Gloria Valentine, Royal Mingo, we all go out, we get drinks and everybody's happy. They're out with the directors and they're just buying me shots. The next day I'm in Macon, Georgia and we're scouting this place and we go into this little closet room that has one window on the wall. And I turn to Mark Freeberg, very hungover, and I go, oh man, it would be crazy if she walked through that door and she was standing in her plot. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, why not? And so he built it. I mean, this is how the image is compounded. And maybe because I was hungover and I wanted coffee, I go, yo, coffee is black. This should be a cafe. This is how the whole thing just came together. And what I love about the show is everybody was so fluid that if you said an idea and you had an underpinning, you know, it would be beautiful if she could stumble into this plot and she goes to a door and the door is closed, her heart is closed. You know, if these things connect and we build it, isn't it beautiful to see a formerly enslaved woman get to walk through the space that's so moving, so empowered, so grounded, and then she has this encounter with herself. And that was how the whole thing came about. I'm not lying. That's how the whole thing came about. And then it was about linking up. I know that she is going to walk out of here and she is going to see her lover, you know, but what happens before that the disorients are to the point that she could imagine him, she could envision him. That was how the whole sequence came together. Um, man, it's just telling that I'm like, people are gonna be like, yeah, Barry Jacobs is just the luckiest, most hungover filmmaker in the world. <laughs> well, yeah, you said it was so simple, but it, you just, like that was that was quite complex. A lot yeah, of things had to happen for everything to fall into place there. And yeah, it all you came have together. to have a lot of skilled people in order to kind of be able to. Uh... Well, 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 and I'll say the skilled people and, you know, the first piece of media anyone saw of the show was the teaser trailer that we call Preamble. It's the very big shot in this location. So after we wrapped all the days filming, um, you know, I got into the habit of understanding that and making the show. I was I was allowing myself to see my ancestors. There are all these wonderful people, all these background actors and advisors who would, who would help us build the costumes, who would help us understand the vocations of these people. And I had hundreds of them gathered in this one space. And so I said to James, I think we should do a portrait. And he had set the camera up and he said, I think this would be a great spot for it. And I realized I couldn't see everyone. I said, like, oh, let's raise the camera up. And I just yelled out to the room, I just want everyone to show me themselves. 
And we did that shot. And again, same thing, it's take one unrehearsed. I'm not going to each individual person saying, you look this way, you look that way. It's just now at the end of the day, people have become um, our ancestors. And I think that thing also came out of just this, I don't know, everyone was just so invested, so in tuned that occasionally these moments would manifest themselves and all we had to do was capture them. I, I just wanted to say, you know, you said earlier, like, uh, you know, Afrofuturism, we think of mm -hmm. Sandra. I kept thinking Afro steampunk, like while watching the show and that that seed in particular. I was I, I was fighting. I was fighting the steampunk. And, and, and Colson told oh, me I would steam. have to fight the steampunk. There is steam. The closest we get <laughs> is, I think, the character uh, of Ellis, who, again, appears very briefly in the book. You know, he picks Cora up of South Carolina and, and leaves her behind in North Carolina. But then we bring him back. Um, in Indiana. And he's the closest we got to steampunk. He's got the little one eye thing with the one uh, shaded uh, spectacle and the clear. He's got his gloves and his leather. But yeah, Colson was like, yo, you cannot go full steampunk. I was like, I know. Uh, you know, I always had in my head the, the Jean-Pierre Junot film. Um, I think not not Delicatessen, but the the one before that it was like City of City, yeah, City of Children, is it? Called? City of City of Children, yeah. I had that in my head. I was like, okay, we can't go there. Yeah, you gotta be careful. Um, but we are in tunnels underground, so I don't know what to do. Well, uh, I I did want to talk about the ending, but I wanted to see if you if you feel ready to talk about it or you feel okay with that. I mean, I I, I can talk about deciding what the why I decided to do it in the same way that. You know, having a 20 minute episode, which dramatically is unnecessary, dramatically is unnecessary. And you might even say as an artist, it would be more truthful um, to have left that character behind. Um, and yet I, I do have, again, you're, I had you're to- talking about the Grace character. Talking about the Grace character, character, exactly, exactly. You know, there's no the plot wise, dramatically, that episode isn't necessary. Um, it isn't necessary. You know, we could just, again, continue on with Cora and not fill in that information. Because here's the thing, Cora never knows what happens to Grace. Even in the scene we talked about with Jasper, you know, she says, hopefully, I know you got out, but she doesn't actually know. Um, and yet I felt like I had a, a moral and ethical responsibility to fulfill even my own hopeful wish that this is what occurred. I will say, as you watch the episode, I'm not sure that it's fact-based. There just happens to be fireflies now that show the way out. There just happens to be a train car waiting. Maybe now I've become Cora, and this is wish fulfillment. I am fulfilling, you know, the the the, the fantasy of what I hope, what I believed happened, and yet I had to do it. I had to do it. Narratively, that scene is so interesting, or that that episode is interesting because she's one of the few characters we do get a follow up on too, who gets left behind by Cora too, exactly. and the others. It, like I, I'm watching and I expect, I keep expecting like, oh, there's, you know, it's by some miracle, mm -hmm. you know, he's going to come back. That's why when we see Caesar again, I'm like, please let, let right, it go. Exactly. And, I, or, and I'm expecting that. It, it's just the way the shows work, right? Yeah. That's the way I, what I'm expecting. And what I think is, that's kind of, I don't want to give, I don't want to, I'm trying to avoid spoiling. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. you, you know, also the thing with uh, with Grace for me, though, is so much of this show for me was about recontextualizing um, what my ancestors did. You know, we refer to them enslaved, which is about what was done to them, but we don't talk as much about what they did. 
And I do think in order for me to exist, to, to, have, uh, to have been born, to live this life and tell these stories, um, uh, to honor my ancestors, you know, they had to have done something to make sure that the children who were born into slavery would beget children and would beget children who would overcome um, the scourge um, of slavery. And I think in a certain way, Cora's living that out. And she does come down out of that place intentionally. She walks right out the front door so that no one needs to go back up, you know, and see what else is up there. And I think it was important to pay that off because I think my ancestors did that in spades. And because they did, here I am talking to you wonderful people about the show made in their image. And so it felt like through revisiting this character and showing that she too, through Cora's sacrifice, made it out, that was a way of confirming um, this thing that I believe to be very true about myself was also true of this character who encountered Cora. Um, so that was why the episode exists. But dramatically, narratively, you know, may maybe if, if it was an uncompromised work, I would just leave that character behind. Um, and yet, and yet I have a moral and ethical responsibility to uh, myself but, and the I audience. Mean, I have to say that's kind of what really is striking is that you take certain liberties mm -hmm. that are revisionist, not just for the, like historically with respect to the book. And that's where kind of, I think your vision comes through most so strongly, you know, and, mm -hmm. and so many of the scenes we've listed play with that boundary between desire, fantasy, mm -hmm. reality, you know, mm -hmm. um, and they, they blur those things. And I think that's a little bit like, you know, you're showing us how history was to some extent, but you're mm -hmm. also showing us how history had to be in the imagination mm -hmm. for people to to make it out, like you said. Well, I think also, um, too, how history has been framed for us, which is another kind of imagining. Um, but now that we are empowered to also frame that history, here is another kind of imagining. Um, I think it's, you know, Colson and I have been talking about, you know, he says, this is not a fact-based adaptation of this book. Not every plot point from the book is in the show, but it's a very truth-based adaptation because uh, the essence of everything in the book is in the show, the same way his depiction of history is historical fiction because he's not confined to the period from 1850 to 1860, you know, he's taking from Tuskegee experiments, the Oregon Exclusionary Acts, eugenics, sterilization of Black women, so many different things. And then that way, it's a very truth-based depiction of history, even though it's not a fact-based depiction of history. Um, and so I think that in certain ways, we've assumed that all the history we've been given has been fact-based. Um, and yet, of course, that is not the case. Um, and so we're correcting some of that fact with a bit of truth um, in the telling of the story. Well, we won't talk about, you know, the ending but I think what you just said answers that. Are you talking about the ending of nine or the ending of no, 10? No, ending of 10, like what happens between Cora and Ridgeway, you know, I'll just say that what you said, I think speaks to that as well, you know, the way that you chose to, to depict that and the ways in which it was a little bit of wish fulfillment, you know, on like the, the auteur's uh, wish fulfillment of this is how I want this history to, to be told. Not, not, not even the auteurs, just as a Black person, you know, who has lived in America their entire life and has been told what America is over and over and over again. And Cora has to sit and listen to this guy tell her what America is over and over and over again. 
And then here comes Donald Glover. <laughs> and he's going to tell you what America really is. Um, yes, a bit of wish fulfillment for sure. Um, but it's very truth-based, very truth-based. It comes out of a very truthful feeling. We didn't get a chance to talk about the music and the, over the credits on, in every episode, but that is uh, always, a, always a pleasure at, as the credits roll. Every time it was like, what's it going to be? And how is it, it going to help? Let me read what I just saw. It was a fun thing to chase. And I'll say what it came out of was as we were editing the show, um, there, were all, there was all this protest justifiably uh, for the killing of George Floyd. And people were taking the score from Beale Street and they were using it to underscore all these images of protest. And I was like, this is crazy. We made this period piece written in the 70s and now people are using it to, to, to sort of like a foundation this very contemporary happening. And I was like, oh my goodness. The first time it happened was Cora walking out of Royal's cabin at the end of the first Indiana episode. I just heard uh, this Groove Theory song that I was obsessed with in high school. And I was like, how is this woman, how is this black woman in 1995 singing directly to the heartache of my character in say 1855? And I realized, oh, there's a continuum of experience. And of course, my ancestors felt heartache. Of course they did. And I was like, oh, this is good. And then we started chasing it for all the episodes. Um, yeah, that was a really fun aspect of the process. Yeah, I remember Bombs Over Baghdad started and I was just like, wait. What? Yeah, yeah, that's a cool one. It's especially because at the end of that episode, you need a jolt of something. Yeah. You need to be pulled out of that experience. Um, you know, I just say real quick, it reminds me of uh, Benjamin Walker, who plays uh, Terrence Randall in the show. We were the day's filming of the Big Anthony sequence, which was all filmed, thankfully, in one day. Um, he was sitting at this table uh, and we were about to start filming. It's like 11 o'clock or noon. And I saw him say to the PA, he took out his cell phone and the PA went over. He's like, no, 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 I'm sorry, Mr. Walker. Mr. Jenkins is about to start filming. You can't, you can't uh, make a call right now. And I see Ben get sad and actually put his phone back in his pocket. And I go over and I go, Ben, what's up? And Ben goes, oh, you know, it's because uh, he lives in London. He's from Georgia. So when he speaks, you hear Georgia. But he actually lives in London uh, with his wife. He married an English woman. He goes, oh, it's like maybe 10 o'clock. And I just wanted to call and tuck my kids in. And I realized, yeah, you want to call and tuck your kids in so you can reaffirm that you were you before you go and become this person. I turned to the PA. I said, let the man go make his fucking call. <laughs> let him go tuck his kids in so he can remind himself that he is him. And that this character is the character. In the same way, you get to the end credits, and it's just a very clear reminder that we are living in now. And even though we're being forthright, we're speaking towards then. There's a separation. It's going to be okay. You're not going to walk outside, and Terrence Randall is going to be standing there. Although, you know, watching these images of these horrific things happening to our people in the streets under the boots of officers, maybe you will. Or the last scene that we wanted to talk about is I think one of the more moving scenes in the whole series. And it takes place in the last episode in the Mabel story. And um, it's the burial of the stillborn child. I can talk about that. Yes, sir. I, I can mean, talk about that. Yeah, it, it was one of those things where, again, we had um, these advisors and stuff. The same way there are people who advise the reenactment of Gettysburg. There are all these wonderful people who are preserving these traditions. And so we found this space um, in the swamp and a little bit of an Easter egg. I don't know if you noticed, but the way we enter that scene is the exact same way that Cora and Caesar and Lovey enter. They're, they're standing in that same space when Lovey catches up to them. It's literally the same shot, the exact same space um, from episode one to episode 10, the exact same space. Um, we filmed them at the same time. 
But I remember setting up this shot and there was something so delicate about it that it felt like typically I want to immerse the audience, but it felt like the audience needed to just witness. I wanted to stay outside it. And so just like with some of the more, I call them hard images and soft images, just like with the hard image um, sequence of brutality, we started out as wide as possible to begin with. And so we're just sitting on the crane and rather than going in and out, we're just going left and right. And the scene began. And what I love about this show is I didn't have to tell the actors everything. And Larray Cooper, who also plays Jockey, in the first episode, at the end of the burial, he just, without my prompting, he put his forehead to the earth and he inhaled the soil. And I was sitting in my chair and I lost it. It was one of the few times in the show where I cried because something was so beautiful. You know, it was just so, as you said, just so dignified. And I thought, oh, this is what we're doing in making the show. You know, this is why we're back here on Georgia soil. It was just um, profoundly moving in a very simple scene. It might be like, I don't know, half a page in the script and yet the impact of it is so, is so large. Yeah, it really sticks with you for sure. Even like now thinking about it is uh, making me emotional because it really, those scenes of like everyday joy and dignity and how they honored lives lived and gone, um, you know, the series is full of those moments. And that's what really sticks with you even beyond the more obvious scenes of, you know, gore or brutality it's it's remarkable that you're able to watch 10 hours of all of that and then come away remembering this scene mm, you know mm. hey it's film comment so you guys have that gift <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you i i um i agree i agree um i agree yeah that one was yeah that was a that was a beautiful night Thank you so much. Thank you guys. And we got through it with no spoilers. No I don't think spoilers. we did. Yeah. Well, we alluded <laughs> yeah. to some spoilers, maybe. Well, we, we did allude to some spoilers. And, and I will say, by the 18th, that'll be about four or five days the show has been in existence. Some people will have watched it all. And, you know, I will check in on those people and make sure they're okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate you giving us the time. Super excited for it to come out. Everyone to see it and to kind of, you know, put, do our little, put our little, uh, our, our thing out there and encourage people to see it as well, so. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Appreciate y'all. Y'all stay safe, all right? The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.